0: Welcome to Urban Awakening. This is Jose Reynoso. Today's episode is all about fungi, mushrooms, medicinal mushrooms, and the dirty little secrets of the industry behind it. I'm interviewing Jeff Chilton. He's a super rad guy. He was behind the movement of uh, expanding awareness and consciousness through mushrooms uh, from 1980s, late 70s. He co-authored the book with um, Paul Stamets, but you'll hear about that later. But this episode is really interesting for me because medicinal mushrooms have taken a big part in my, in my life, in my own evolution. Um, it's interesting how I never even thought about medicinal mushrooms until I moved to Vancouver, BC, Canada. And once I got there, I started seeing them all over the place in health shops and whatnot. And I got attracted to them without anybody telling me any specific information. They just looked like cool little guys that if I take or eat them in a capsule form or I eat them fresh, I kind of knew my subconscious or my higher self to say, kind of knew that uh, they will bring great benefits. And that was seven years ago, almost eight years ago, and I still, almost daily, take medicinal mushrooms. They've uh, contributed in many, many ways to my health. Uh, I find they bring clarity, they bring uh, endurance and energy in my workouts, Uh, and also during this interview we talk about psilocybin mushrooms, and they've also contributed in my own evolution and path. I believe uh, it's a human right, birthright to access these ancient medicine tools and Jeff Chilton talks a little bit about the story about how this fungi started to infiltrate society and um, how his work with Paul Stamets also helped in creating the base and the knowledge that we can access nowadays. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did during this interview and um subscribe share the link to this episode you can also find the youtube video episode on urban awakening youtube channel and there's going to be some links in the description you can find uh jeff Chilton's book on amazon it's pretty pricey but if you are really into cultivating your own medicinal mushrooms or not so um medicinal in the sense of the traditional way If we go to the ancient way of medicinal like psilocybin you can also find information in his book blessings and i hope you enjoy okay welcome everybody this is urban awakening and i'm jose reynoso today we have jeff chilton he studied ethnomycology at the university of washington in the late 60s, and in 1973, he began a 10-year career as a large-scale commercial mushroom grower, a founder of MycoMedia, which sponsored four mushroom conferences from 1979 to 1985. Jeff is the co-author of The Mushroom Cultivator, published in 1983, and in 1989, Jeff established Namex, the first company to supply medical mushrooms extracts to the nutritional supplement industry. In 1997, he organized the first organic certification workshop for mushroom production in China, and that's uh, that's just the, the summary of a long and extensive uh, resume that you have and background. Uh, welcome! Thank you very much for joining us today. And uh, are you located in Canada? That's right, right?
1: Yeah, I'm up in uh, British Columbia. Actually, <laughs> I'm I'm on I live on Vancouver Island, a very little small community that's. Uh, right uh, seaside and 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 jose thank you so much for having me on today i really appreciate it it's great
0: yeah yeah it's it's so nice to to be chatting with you while you're in bc because i call bc home even though right now i'm in spain i every time they ask me where 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 do you call home i say if anywhere it will be vancouver vancouver island that's that's where i have my heart
1: yeah absolutely right
0: so um You know, sometimes when I have such interesting characters as yourself, I always have this question: If you meet somebody that doesn't know you, and they ask, like, "So, who are you? How do you introduce yourself?"
1: (laughs) Well, you know what? Uh, Normally, people like to ask you, "Well, what do you do?" And Mm -hmm. and I I tell them, "Well, I'm in the mushroom business." (laughs) Uh, And then if they get any deeper, I'll, I'll tell them, "Well, I sell." Uh, bulk mushroom extracts to the supplement industry. And, and that's kind of the basics of what we do. We we sell bulk extract powders that, that companies buy. They put them in capsules, bottles, put their label on and they sell them into retail. We're a wholesaler.
0: A wholesaler. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so I, I bet many of, of the mushroom products I've tried, I'm sure they come from your farm. Um, and um, so before we get into the aspect of the of the mushroom cultivation let's start with a book uh, that you wrote uh, it was co-author the mushroom cultivator book i read somewhere because i haven't been able to get my hands on it it's pretty rare like even online it's they they're like i've seen b- the book go for 150 euros in in, in europe and for 60 dollars in the u.s or whatnot um, somebody stated that the mushroom cultivator by paul stamets and j.s chilton is easily the best source of information for growing mushrooms at home. Um, I guess it has changed a generation, the book, it, because I was reading along the internet. Now you can find reviews and everything, and everybody is like, this book is like the Bible for growing mushrooms. If, if you're serious into growing your own fungi, get this book.
1: <laughs> well, you know what's interesting is, 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 and this is part of the history of it all, back in the, the 1970s, Uh, people were just kind of discovering mushrooms and my generation was discovering mushrooms and the shamanic side of them. And so a lot of people were out uh, looking for mushrooms that produce visions, let's say. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And in the mid, in the mid seventies, a couple small little books came out that were about how to grow magic mushrooms. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and our and and what was what was going on in a sense all of a sudden from having to go out and find these things in the fields or wherever they grew which a lot of people were doing cultivation started to come in as first of it was these small books and then in 1983 I mean I, I had 10 years of large scale commercial mushroom growing at the time so. That book was designed not just for growing edible mushrooms, which it was, but all those same techniques could be gr- used for growing, uh, let's just say, entheogenic, entheogenic uh, mushroom. mushrooms. Mm-hmm. And so, so it became quite a popular book, and and people moved into cultivation. And you know, man, Jose, today there are millions of pounds of those types of mushrooms being produced in the world today. So that's one of the things that gave the book its, its staying power. And also it sort of opened up that whole aspect of, oh man, we can actually grow these things.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, I was reading that uh, even though it was written in 1983, um, it's still not outdated. They said that some techniques maybe due to technology, we can probably like make more efficient, but still the base it's the same and if you want to grow mushrooms efficiently and in in a sustainable way this is the bible for it so why don't we go to the beginning uh um were you inspired by robert gordon wasson and for those that don't know who robert gordon wasson was he was uh for my understanding he was the pioneer in bringing uh psilocybin or magic mushrooms into into the western world or western um scope after his uh, first encounter with uh with um, Maria Sabina right
1: yeah well well it's an interesting story because uh, there was a, a botanist who was down in Mexico who was who was who heard about this in the in the 30s and he, and, and it was Richard Evans Schultes from Harvard University very famous botanist and and he just, he found a couple of species not the major species he didn't find the people that were using them, but he came back and he published on it. Gordon Lawson, uh, with a Russian wife, was, was looking into mushrooms worldwide and their uses as food, and he heard about the use of, of psilocybin mushrooms in Mexico, and this, this fascinated him, so he took a French mycologist with him and they went down to Oaxaca, up to uh, the Sierra Mazateca and other areas of Oaxaca. And they spent the next five years, every summer during the rainy season, they were down there not only hunting mushrooms with the local people, but also they, they were actually participating in some ceremonies. And, and he met Maria Sabina. And then here's, here's the amazing thing is that at the time that this discovery was made, because think about it for a minute, nobody in the world knew that this was still going on, that there were still people in the world, a culture that was using uh, psilocybin mushrooms in healing practices. Nobody had any idea that this was happening.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. He published an article Mm -hmm. on this in a, in a mainstream American magazine called life magazine. Mm -hmm. And the headline that was on the cover said, amazing discovery (laughs) mushrooms that cause vision found in Mexico. (laughs) Can you imagine? And like, like, isn't this, isn't this incredible? Isn't this wonderful? Mm -hmm. And then he went on to write a a two-volume book with this mycologist that uh, was actually only 500 copies were produced. The the set cost a, a thousand or so dollars and the only place you could find it was in rare book rooms. And so when I found out about this, I, I also found out that the, the, a copy of this was in the rare book room of the University of Washington Library. Wow. And when you went there, you went into this beautiful, it was a beautiful old library in this one special room with all these different books. You would have to sign in and they would go bring this to you and you could only read it right there you could not check it out or anything like that so that was really a big part of my studies
0: wow um so and like when i when i first heard that he wrote that article on on live uh, magazine or newspaper um i was like a pretty like my mind was trying to make sense of it you know because i guess back then there was no uh negative uh perspective associated with uh psilocybin mushrooms or or, or visionary mushrooms, right? And I think nowadays it will be completely different, but back then there was no harm, at least known to us. So that's why it was such a great discovery. That's why there was no filter for him to publish that article, right?
1: Yes. Well, Well. and and, and think about this for a second. Um, You know, in that early 19th century and even 18th century, classical scholars were trying to figure out what were considered some of the important, I don't know whether I say problems, but important issues of history. And one of those histories was, for example, what was the soma that was used in India because nobody really knew. Mm-hmm. So, so um, people who studied this and classical Western scholars were very interested and and so this was part of what became part of Wasson's whole study and discovery. Um, he later, 10 years later, after his work in Mexico, uh, started looking at the whole Soma issue and decided through a lot of serious work that it was another mushroom, Amanita muscaria. Now, now having... Discovered that and and wrote a book on it. He wrote a book on it. Soma, divine mushroom of immortality, because that's what he was talking about with this soma. It took you to another world. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally think that the soma could and and could have also been a psilocybe mushroom, and I think a lot of the evidence would point to that as well and, and we can talk about Soma later but it was just interesting he was one of the first people that actually brought this consciousness or this idea this awareness of mushrooms as part of ancient religions to a broader audience
0: yeah 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 that actually you you touch upon Soma that was my the question that just um popped into my mind when you were talking about uh, Watson's adventures. But uh, before that, you were saying that, yeah, after this um, uh, book that wasn't released, it opened the doors to maybe put into um, a new perspective uh, what the church or where those uh, teachings came from because after that, many people have ventured into learning that maybe uh, the, the sacred sacrament was involved with psilocybin or Amanita Muscaria or
1: whatever, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, here's what's really interesting to me because um, what we have here is we have, uh, for example, um, the use of a mushroom as a sacrament in native practices in Central America, and then then we discover through Wasson that. It was very likely a mushroom that was the center of an ancient Hindu religion. And and then at the exact same time, we have a um, English scholar who is part of a team of scholars that is looking at the recent discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls coming out. His name is John Marco Allegro. Coming out and saying the exact same thing about a mushroom being at the heart of Christianity. So think about this for a minute. All of a sudden in the 1960s, we have somebody that is saying a mushroom's at the root of of Christianity and the mystical tradition in Christianity, and a mushroom is at the root of the whole Hindu religion and is the Soma. And we've actually found actively being used in Mexico. For me, I found that absolutely astounding that all of this would come out at this same time. And and it just validated what I suspected, because part of my studies at university was around religion and ancient religions, and it validated my feeling and the experience of many others that what was described as a a religious experience in these early, whether it be Christianity or the Hindu religion stemmed from mushrooms and possibly other plants.
0: And that's a very uh, interesting and important point you're uh, mentioning because for me, uh, I uh, grew up in a Catholic uh, uh, family also, and many many things in religion, like I did understand the message of compassion, love, but many things of the miracles, and, and the, I, think, I think that the juicy parts of, of the Bible and the teachings, they didn't make sense according to the steps we were given, you know, like at, when you go to church school or whatever. And uh, as soon as I learned about... Uh, all this discovery with the mushrooms and and 1970, 1960s, I was like, that was the missing link. That was the, that was the, that was the, I guess like, that was the code that we were not given. And that's why many people drifted away from religion because it was just based on, on faith and not experiential practices. And I think it was in a crucial moment of uh, humanity, even though I was not alive in those dates, I think it was a crucial moment that it was okay Here we are, probably the mushrooms. Here we are. We are the experience you're looking for, and now take us take us around the world.
1: Yes, yes. No, no. Indeed, absolutely right. And and you know, when you think about it, first of all, why did we not know about these mushrooms? Why was that hidden? And then what you have to do is you have to go back to the fact that religion and the state. Have throughout history been suppressing this type of knowledge and have been actively persecuting people utilizing mushrooms or other plants, just like when they did all the the um, the Inquisition uh, and the the witch hunts that they did in Europe and the United States, where, where uh, those were were um, geared towards healers women for the most part who were the curanderas of the time they were the healers of the time and and so you can see that what ultimately had to happen with the use of these plants is it had to go underground
0: And, underground. and so
1: in a sense the underground has been there forever because it's the state and the, the churches that are constantly trying to control us and control what we do and what we think. And so they, they completely um, brought, they, they wrote the mushroom and these other substances plants out of the church teachings. And so what we were left with is we were left with, rituals and ideas that didn't make sense mm-hmm. <laughs> because what was really the main part and the point of it all was utilization of the mushrooms or the plants and even the stories that they told when you look at it from a different perspective you can see that having a, a psychoactive plant or a mushroom it it makes sense now when you think about it, and, and they also had to look, they also had to um, start talking in um, metaphor and in coded language, because at some point, uh, the people that were using these realized that they were being persecuted and they even had to go underground. So, so a lot of the, the information that otherwise would have identified what was going on, all of a sudden now it was gone. And unless you knew uh, about the metaphor and coded language, you were in, you were completely in the dark.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think it comes to my mind that uh, like when you go to church and you have uh, the body of God or Jesus, like, like,
1: the body, right?
0: like I'm sure they intended to give us some other body, and but then you will create your own experience and that will definitely take away the power from uh, those people. Uh, Uh, levels or the the church but anyways uh yeah it's super interesting the part of of religion uh because it definitely now things make sense at least for me and the people have been sharing this information they're like aha that's it makes sense it just makes sense that it was intended for you to have your own experience and not to even have to read a book you create your own reality your own religion based on your experience not on somebody else filtering god's message right
1: absolutely right and, and you know the point as well too is that is you can come together in groups and have these experiences together just like today um one of the great um uh examples of this is the Native American church in in uh, the U.S. and and parts of Mexico and also the uh the people in uh, uh Brazil that use ayahuasca in their churches now Uh, I think the Native American church is a good example. I'm not so sure about the, some of the organized religions down in Brazil, because even though they use the sacrament, there's a little bit of that organization. Control, yeah. That I think is not, not positive, but with the Native American church as a method, that seems to me to be uh, a very positive way of, of having people, giving them this experience because, you know, the, the, the issue of the 60s was that we were all um, consuming mushrooms or other psychoactive uh, compounds with no roadmap.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There was no, nothing out there that told us how to use these.
0: Like context. So we
1: were really flying blind.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and that, was, that was an issue. And, and the other side of that is that when they criminalized it, In 1965, well, what that meant is that you had to do it in secret. You had to always be aware of the fact that you could be arrested. Uh, People were arrested and put in jail. I mean, I mean, you know, talking about Mexico back, you know, when this was all happening and when people got this information about the fact of magic mushrooms in the mountains of Mexico, a flood of people descended on Huautla looking for the mushrooms, including, including uh, young people in Mexico as well. And the next thing, you know, you have all of these young people wandering around the Sierra Mazateca, very high and local people going, what, is going on.
0: I think even Maria Sabina said that she regretted sharing the her little uh, angels because it brought so much pain and and uh, uh, let's say like chaos to to her town and to the to the land. I guess in some sort. Of well, way.
1: well, you know the other, the other issue there, uh, Jose, is that is that um, all of a sudden when you have people coming in there, a market builds up where now local people are going hey i can go harvest these and now i can sell them and that and and so it becomes commodified and, and this is this is something that that can it always move.
0: it always happens right like just like ayahuasca now in iquitos they say that it's like going uh to a car and getting ayahuasca you know they're selling you by the liter by the kilo and there's like so the shamans or whatever so it's, uh, it's i think that's that's once we taint uh nature and medicine with our uh, uh own belief systems that we carry to those lands i guess of monetizing well
1: you know what and this is where this is where for me um i felt that and listen i i i was in well uh, but after the fact, because you know what happened down there is that in uh, once all of this really started to build up in 1967 or 68, the Mexican Mexican government went in and they put in roadblocks. Oh wow. all the roads going into Woutla, they had the army station there, so that anybody going in and out, they would not let you in if you're if you're you know let's just say a, a long haired young person wanting to go to wildlife and not only that they went in with the army and they swept through the whole area rounded up everybody and if you were an american they deported you if you were mexican they just booted you out of there and then they they basically sealed it off and and that that was that was in place for probably the next 15 years where they had it sealed off now, when I went, went up in there, I went up there in um, 1972. I had an amigo that I knew, uh, uh, a Mazatecan man whose whose um, sister was actually a Curandera, and and I snuck in and, and went up there to to visit and to check it out at a time when when really, you know, I had to sneak by the. The soldados that were there mm-hmm. and, and had to go in there. And it was, and, and then, and then the funny thing is, is that I went back there in 2002 and had a beautiful experience with a woman called Dona Julieta, who was a curandera. And, and there was literally only one gringo in town.
0: Yeah. Wow.
1: And, and there's maybe like, Three or four um, Mexican hippies, mm-hmm. and, and not only that. Now in Walla they have a a yearly mushroom festival in July. And Maria Sabina is now a major positive figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, not just in Mexico, but in in Wella now, mm-hmm. and she's a big part of this this whole mm-hmm. town. And they're very proud of her. And, and you know, and part of it too is is merchandising (laughs) (laughs) they probably have you know maria Sabina dolls and stuff like that oh yeah t-shirts everything yeah yeah i know And, and, and you know there's books written about her and but but let me just say this it's it's calm there's not all of these people coming in from all over they have this wonderful festival there's probably more locals and people from the surrounding area but they embrace. The mushrooms up there. And that's a that's a beautiful thing.
0: I think it was a it was a period of adaptation also. It was a, I think the mushrooms were a great uh disruptive uh technology, if we can call, because it was going against or against, or it was just taking the veils of religion, politics, power, and what truth is, because it was redefining history. That's what it did. It was like everybody, like from Timothy Larry, Adolf Huxley, they all say that their trip with uh, uh, in in the Mexican lands with mushroom, it was it was the most important day in their life, and they yes. changed uh, the way we perceive the brain and whatnot, right? But
1: Absolutely. you also
0: lived in Mexico, right? Could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Well, I, I uh, you know what I when I, uh, I I went to high school in Phoenix, Arizona. Okay, Mexico was just right there, and and in high school, I was lucky enough to study Spanish. Mm-hmm. So I had 4 years of Spanish in high school and there was just something about Mexico that that attracted me. So I I went down there multiple times in the the late 60s and then in 1971 I I went down to Mexico and I I lived in the state of Oaxaca for a year and a half. Mm. And, and and literally I lived I had no money. Uh, I I just lived on a few pesos a day and and I would Rent small casitas in different small towns, and it would be i mean sometimes it was like fifty pesos a month for a wow. adobe floor casita right It was very inexpensive. you could live there very cheaply and, and I just kind of traveled around there was there was still at that point a lot of of young people traveling in Mexico. It was a wonderful time, a lot of uh, camaraderie with not only other gringos, but uh, Mexicanos, Mexicanas that were, were traveling around as well. So it was just a, um, a period of, of discovery. Um, it was also, for me, where I could experience a different culture. And look, I love Mexico. I, I just think the cultures in Mexico, the fact that they have so many native cultures that are still intact, and at that point in time they were very intact still um, today you know it's getting a little bit you know different today certainly but back th- and you know back then let me tell you I I hitchhiked everywhere I went I hitchhiked sometimes I took I'd take a bus but I was doing hitchhiking everywhere and people who picked me up they you know where it was a long trip they'd stop and buy me lunch or they'd buy me dinner or or there, you know, at some point, they, you know, oh, we got to stop here and, and stay, you know, come on in, you can s- sleep here tonight, whatever. I mean, it was just like, oh, people wow. were so friendly. I, I mean, think
0: I think we still have that people, which is like 90%, but then you have that 10% of chances of going into the wrong car and, and, meeting, and getting invited to the wrong party, I guess.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. That's right. And you know what? I, I feel so bad about Mexico because it's been under the influence of uh, the United States for so long, and they've supported all of these, these governments like the PRI that have been just a one party rule in Mexico for all those years. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, the fact that now down there, I just feel like with all of the cartels and all the rest of this stuff, it's really unsafe in so many ways. And, and I, I feel so bad for the Mexican people over that because they deserve better.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mexico is a great country. I must say I still travel Mexico with my van and my girlfriend all around and I stay in small towns and people still come out and and welcome the gringos, even though I don't look gringo, but they see the license plate from British Columbia and they bring us uh, beer or, or, or sandwiches or tacos, whatever. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, when was your first uh, ceremony in, in Mexico? Because before going to Mexico, you never tried uh, a ceremony outside of Mexico, right?
1: or did you? That's right. That's right. I never did. Um you know what actually uh, during that uh trip down there I didn't really have a, a ceremony when I did make it to Wildland 71 with my with my amigo uh it turns out that uh it wasn't the the rainy season.
0: Hmm.
1: So so there weren't any around so ultimately um uh, he and I and he was a really interesting uh, guy. Joaquin Mazatecos are 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 very short. They're like you know five foot one, five foot two, or something like that. Very sturdy, uh, up and down hills, day in day out. Very strong people. Very interesting people. He and I shared a, a, a toke uh, mm-hmm. that night, and and he, he he actually you know this was what was interesting about about that. Even though I didn't have an experience with the the ongos. Uh, that trip, when we we had that toke, and we started talking in his small little shack, literally a shack on the side of the mountain, and I discovered at that point in time that, you know how we all want to go to foreign lands to seek ourselves Mm -hmm. to some degree, and I realized at that point in time that I didn't really have to be in Mexico to find that. And that's what I found in Mexico. I found that, in fact, yes, that I could do that back where I lived, that what I was looking for was back there. I didn't have to go all the way to Mexico. But, but in fact, coming to Mexico, I did ultimately come to that realization
0: mm-hmm. that
1: it's all really within us and, and that, that it, in, in a lot of cases, what we're looking for is just in our own backyard. Mm. because we <clears throat> where were you looking for you know our true self and, and we're trying to have that experience of the the essence uh of the that energy level out there the the uh samadhi the mm. the bliss uh, that's what we're looking for we're looking to to um get back to the source
0: to, to get back get back home yes. uh, so uh as I mentioned before, you uh, co-authored uh, the book uh, *Mushroom Cultivator* um, with Paul Stamets. Um, where do you meet uh, Paul Stamets? Because it, it looks like uh, you guys were like meant to connect in this earth, because you're like the the the, the fungi uh, wizards and and uh, and experts.
1: Well, you know what? When when uh, um, in 1973, after coming back from my year and a half in Mexico. Mm-hmm. I realized that I wanted to become a mushroom cultivator and there's only one mushroom farm in Washington state. I went to that mushroom farm. I applied, I got a job. I was on that farm for the next 10 years and that was in uh, Olympia, Washington. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, during the next 10 years, Olympia Washington became a center of people interested in um, uh, psychoactive mushrooms, and also uh, where there were conferences that brought, that was the beginning of conferences that brought together Gordon Wasson, Albert Hofmann, the man that discovered LSD, uh, Richard Evan Schultes, the the man that uh, pretty much uh, um, uh, elucidated Ayahuasca, and also was the man I was talking about that was in Mexico in the 30s that discovered mushroom use there. Um, so mushroom conferences started to be held there. And, and I, I met Paul, he was a student at the time at uh, a local university. Mm-hmm. And, and he got uh, wind of the fact that I was there at this mushroom farm. This was about 1977 or something, mm-hmm. and so we met. And at the time, you know, he was he was growing mushrooms in jars, and and a very, you know, the techniques were not very good. Bootleg like
0: mushroom growing.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, I was working on a large farm. We we had you know had it all dialed in really well, and so we got together, became very close friends, and in fact, we even. We even started up uh, he and I and two other people started up a a um, organization that that actually had mushroom conferences and then we sort of continued it on continued on with it and our conferences were strictly about mushrooms and and my part of my role in these conferences was cultivation uh, Paul was a lot of identification and we had other people talking about Uh, identification and things like that. But this was the point I'm kind of telling you about because in the mid 70s, books were being written too about about the fact of we have these psychoactive mushrooms, these psilocybes in the Pacific Northwest, Mm -hmm. in British Columbia, in Oregon, in Washington. And people are out there looking for them and discovering them. So we have these these, uh, field guides being written. Paul Mm -hmm. wrote one. Somebody else wrote one, but at the same time that this was happening, um, one of the things that I brought to it was cultivation.
0: Cultivation, mm.
1: and so and, and so um, in the run-up to 1983, Paul and I were were close. We we were working together on cultivation, and we decided to write this book, which which essentially once that book was published. The, the ability to cultivate in a major way just opened that whole thing up. And, and you know what happened was um, a lot of people, because of that, all of a sudden you didn't see people out in the fields anymore <laughs> walking around looking for the wild philosophies anymore. It, that kind of fell away a little bit, and, and people started cultivating, and all of a sudden the mushrooms were available in a much more major way. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, The last conference we had, by the way, Jose, the last conference we had in 1983 or 84, I think it was, our keynote speaker was Terrence McKenna.
0: Terrence McKenna. I I was just actually, my next uh, question was going to be about that last conference, which uh, was named, uh, titled End of Millennium Mushroom Conference, right?
1: I I don't, I don't remember that myself, but we had it at a place called uh, uh, Brighton Bush Hot Springs.
0: Okay, okay. Uh, you heard. know the first the first time I heard about that conference, and I yeah. didn't I didn't connect the dots that it was actually you who started this. It was at How to Change Your Mind, book by Michael Pollan, uh, which okay. he's interviewing Paul Stamets, and he tells uh, Michael about this. Uh, mushroom gatherings conference that were happening in the pacific northwest and that everybody was uh, dressed up in costumes of their favorite uh, fungi because it was all <laughs> fungi <laughs> mushrooms and and you know I, you know when you read a book you you kind of like start imagining what it would look like i was like oh man that could be hilarious but today i found uh, uh, like uh, you can find everything now online i found uh a whole uh, um, file of pictures of various characters dressed up as their favorite mushrooms, Manita muscaria and many others that i probably don 't even know uh, but it looks amazing and uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and and it yeah. looks really fun and and the the interesting thing is that you were gathering the top uh, psychedelic uh, pioneers or or advocates of the u s or and probably the world in one place you have Ken Kisley and his boss. Further, you had Sasha Shulgin, Paul Stamets, of course, Dr. Andrew Well. It was it was it was an, an amazing gathering. Uh, and uh, so, what what was the feeling there when you had all these like-minded people talking about mushrooms?
1: Well, listen, it was it was a very exciting time, very exciting time, because this was information again that had kind of been been hidden and obscured for hundreds and hundreds of years, and all of a sudden, it was being dragged out into the open. And, and whether it was researchers or just the general public, more and more people were getting involved. So, so, and to have these people there as resources, and you know, the interesting part about it was that when you have these top people there, like whether it be Andrew Weil or uh, Richard Evans Schultes, some of these people they're right there. If you want to go talk to them, you can go talk to them. You know, it's not like they're they're in a position where okay, they come, they give a speech, they're gone, nothing like that. They're there. It was a 3-day affair and and this one that we had at Brighton Bush, this was the last one for for our group called Michael Media. And at that one what where the costumes came in was that that one was Held right around Halloween because that's that's still the heart of the rainy season in Oregon. And I remember that very first conference and in at the Brighton Bush Hot Springs, which was our final one. Um, I remember at one point there was a, a conga line of people dancing, mm-hmm. and a couple of the costumes <laughs> were were the. Um, Alice in Wonderland Caterpillar. (laughs) And and uh, and you know, an Alice in Wonderland figure, and you know, it was so amazing to see this caterpillar out there. And it was kind of like leading this conga line of people dancing. (laughs) But it was, it was, it was just these conferences were were fantastic ways. And you get all these people together and there are a lot of new ideas and new connections and and so. That's really what came out of this, and, and the interesting part about it was that Olympia, Washington, was kind of a focal point during that late 70s, early 80s, and uh, that's where Paul is headquartered. And and I I moved up to British Columbia in 1983 after we published the book, and I came up here, and and I uh, because I you know what the fact of the matter is is I I needed to get away from the U.S. I, I felt it was you know, that was Ronald Reagan. and I, I felt it was not mm-hmm. the right place for me to be. Whereas it was Canada looked a lot better. But I had mm-hmm. friends up here and, and a really nice community that, that I moved to. So I moved up to BC and, and then in 1989, I started my business Namex, uh, selling, uh, basically medicinal mushroom extracts.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So n- 1989, you started Namex and, um, this takes us to the next chapter. Um, you were already like an expert at cultivation and then you had this idea of, of creating cultivation or like uh, or partnering up with uh, or creating your own cultivation facilities in China and getting uh, them to cultivate uh, these mushrooms for uh, the Western world that much needed this because mushrooms are food, mushrooms are medicine. Um, So for some of the audience or listeners that don't know, uh, what kind of uh, mushrooms uh, do you start growing at the beginning and why can they be food and medicine?
1: Well, you know um, during this whole period the seventies and eighties, I'm reading so much about mushrooms and mushroom growing and I come across the whole, the whole uh, body of work about medicinal mushrooms. Now, to be clear, I consider the probably the top medicinal mushroom to be psilocybe, but that's another story. Mm-hmm. Uh, these mushrooms were used in Asia for thousands of years in traditional Chinese medicine. And, and there's actually a book out there that's written that has 270 species that it names as having medicinal properties. But, but the way I looked at it was, okay, what are the ones that still have scientific research behind them? And there were about 12 that had a solid body of scientific research. One of the main ones was reishi. And reishi is a polypore. It's woody. You can't eat it, but it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's got a, this perfect kind of ram's horn type cap. It is, it is bright red, especially when you shine it up. It's a beautiful mushroom. It is in Chinese mythologies. Hmm. You see it in their architecture in different places and in symbols of it everywhere. And it's considered um, a longevity herb in China. It's also called the mushroom of immortality. So reishi is a a, a mushroom that really stood out, was very interesting, and and, uh, there was A lot of work around it. And then I discovered the work uh, with some of the other mushrooms as well, shiitake, maitake, cordyceps. So in 1989, I went to China for the first time, went to an international conference there, a mushroom conference, international mushroom conference. And throughout the the whole 90s, I traveled in China extensively, research facilities, farms, factories, uh, conferences, And here's the issue is that I'm a mushroom grower by trade. Um, I know the economics of growing mushrooms and I realized that you can grow mushrooms for food purposes in North America, Mm -hmm. but mushrooms are 90% water. Mm -hmm. Supplements are dry. So, When you take and grow those mushrooms and sell them for five dollars a pound and then you dry them out 90% water. Now you now it's like what you got five dollars for. That now you have to get fifty dollars for a pound of dried mushrooms. The economics don't work. So 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 that people know this: no company in the United States is growing mushrooms for use as nutritional supplements. I realized that, I went to China, I organized mushroom growing in China, and look, China grows 85% of the world's mushrooms. 85% of the world's mushrooms, and they have tens of thousands of mushroom growers in China lots and lots of small producers. In 1997, I went to China with a large organic certifier. We had the first organic certification workshop for mushrooms in China, 1997. So I organized that, I I partnered up with people who could make extracts for me, and we've been getting all of our mushrooms and mushroom extracts made in China since that time. And again, because You cannot grow mushrooms in North America and and be able to sell them economically as supplements. And, And on that point, I want to be clear about something because a lot of people will say, oh, gee, I see lots of mushroom supplements that say made in the USA. What they make in the USA is not mushroom. It is mycelium, and they grow it on sterilized grain, and then after the mycelium covers the grain and this is all done in a laboratory, it's all sterile. They will dry it, grind it to a powder, grain and all. And then these companies will call it mushroom. Mm. And, and the easiest way for somebody to visualize this Jose is tempeh. <clears throat> There's a food out there <clears throat> called tempeh. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, let me, let me give you the test. Do you, uh, um, do you know how tempeh is made?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually know uh, because I love tempeh. So it's uh oh,
1: good, good, good. Uh, okay.
0: It's uh, soy with a mix of rice grains that it's all like pureed and then it's mixed and then it's uh, fermented, let let ferment in a like, in cold, moldy environment or the fridge kind of thing. I, I think they have to add a bacteria or something. Is that correct?
1: Okay, I was going to ask you what do they ferment it with? Do you know what they ferment it with?
0: I I should know but I don't I don't, I don't <laughs> that's remember. Okay, that's fine. one second, no. I'm just going to put the light. I want to get the light.
1: Sure. Nobody, it's
0: getting dark here and uh, yeah, uh, yeah.
1: Nobody has actually nobody has actually answered that question, but but the way it's made is is they they cook soybeans. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they cook a grain, soybeans, and then they put a fungus on it. Mm-hmm. And that oh fungus- yeah, it's, it's from the it's, isn't it from the water?
0: Like in Bali,
1: they say it's is from the
0: fungi that is uh, present in water. That's why Western tempe will never be as beneficial as Balinese tempe because the water is too clean. That's why they claim. Well, it.
1: well, you know what? Actually, they add the fungal spores. Yeah. Mm-hmm. because it's a fungus that does not produce a mushroom. It's just a, it's called an imperfect fungus, and they put the spores, they mix okay. the spores on it, and it's a very fast-growing fungus. So what you're eating with tempeh is actual fungal mycelium.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that is cooked soybeans with mycelium on it. So that white stuff on the tempeh is mycelium. Mm-hmm. So that is what people in the United States are growing and selling as mushroom.
0: So we're buying grains,
1: basically. You're buying grains, basically. And, uh-huh. and if you look very closely at the label, it will say, um, um, well, some, sometimes it will say, if you turn it over, it will say uh, mycelium. And if you look in the others, sometimes it will say myceliated oats, myceliated rice. But it, on the front panel, it will say reishi mushroom, shiitake mushroom. And it will have a picture of a mushroom. And so when you go to buy it, you literally think, that you are actually getting a mushroom product when you are not
0: okay so to to share this with the audience so if it says mycelium in the back or wherever if it says mycelium you're not actually getting the mushroom you're getting grain right? right and and That's the labeling right. will be like buying a a juice that says 100% natural juice even though it has been pasteurized and maybe Added some vitamin C and whatever for this, to stabilize the and, and enhance the shelf life, right? So it's
1: you know what the, those products are. You know, and, and here's the thing: we we but they're expensive. Measure... They're expensive, expensive mycelium oh, products, oh, really oh, expensive. Oh, it's, it's very expensive grain powder. <laughs> very expensive grain powder, and, and and the 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 problem is is that when we analyze those products, they're very low in beta glucans, and the beta glucans are why. Mushrooms are medicinal without the beta glucans it's not a medicinal mushroom that's the that's the the line that 's what makes it medicinal so they're very low in beta glucan mushrooms are high in beta glucans those products are very high in starch mushrooms don't have any starch yeah. so so those products when you analyze them they're thirty to sixty percent starch from all of the grain that is still in the product and they're very low in in actual beta-glucans, which is what you are looking for.
0: So what's uh, beta-glucan?
1: Well, beta-glucan is a polysaccharide, and, and it has a, uh, the ability to activate the production of immune cells in the human body. So, so when we take that mushroom supplement, or we drink the tea, or we even eat mushrooms, those beta-glucans will go down and we have receptor sites in our small intestine and those beta-glucans will hit those receptor sites. And if we need an immunological boost, those receptor sites will will stimulate the production of immune cells, which which are called macrophages, uh, natural killer cells, T-cells. So that will activate these immune cells, which will then... Go out and start to look for any invaders that we have that are in our blood or in our system to destroy them. So, so that's what the beta glucans do. They activate our yeah. immunity, and that's really, you know, you have to think about medicinal mushrooms as much as anything else as preventive medicine. Yeah. Take them, um, use them, they sit in the background. They're not, you know, it's not like. It's not like me drinking a cup of coffee and a couple of hours later going, "Wow, I'm mm-hmm. <laughs> really stimulated," right? Not like it. Not like taking uh, ibuprofen and going, "My headache's gone," or aspirin or something. That's not how mushrooms work. Uh, they you have to take them for a while. They work in the background and and then they're helping you stay healthy. Look at them as, as a preventive medicine.
0: Okay, so basically, we're buying a a mycelium or or grain uh, um, mycelium. We're buying mushrooms, or not even, there's the mycelium that doesn't have the actual property, the beta glucan that activates the immune cells, which uh, that's the whole purpose of mushrooms from my perspective. Because as you said, you don't take them when you're sick. Many friends tell me, like, what are you doing with all these bags of powders, adding them to your smoothie? Like, you're pretty healthy. Why do you need more? I'm like, well, I travel a lot. I'm in environments and I work with people. I tend to uh, fuel up extra, like extra tanks of of energy and and, and nutrients and information, let's say. So when the time comes, hopefully never comes, I'm prepared for that. And that's the beauty of medicinal mushrooms because they have this intelligence that prepares your body and strengthens your body for whenever it's needed. It knows how to to, uh, not even react, how to counteract. Whatever Exactly.
1: No, no, that's absolutely right. And then that's, that's, you're doing the right thing. It's just like, just like when people like, like my sons, they will have a smoothie every day Mm -hmm. and they'll put in this, they'll put in that. That's, that's what we're sort of calling, taking charge of our own health. And, and, and that's the whole idea of uh, a nutritional supplement or a vitamin we're going, we want to just make sure that we're getting enough, uh, Vitamin B or A or D, vitamin D. So, so we go, okay, first of all, we want to get this from our food. Mm. Food and, and nutrition is the basis for our health. Mm. But as a precaution, we will supplement too. And and with the supplements and with a good diet, that's what's going to keep us healthy. I mean, I mean there's other things involved in human health. Yeah, yeah like exercise mm-hmm. and and uh, not only that where you live you live in a city well you know you're breathing in air that's not great and and there's maybe there's stresses that come with the city if you're in a car a lot oh man the stresses that come in with just being in a car driving in mm-hmm. traffic. Yeah. So, so yes, this is part of it. And you know we want food to be our medicine, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why that's why I'm always saying I'm always saying Eat mushrooms. eat mushrooms. Make mushrooms part of your diet. There's some uh-huh. fabulous mushrooms, edible mushrooms, shiitake. Do you, do you eat shiitake at all?
0: Uh, like, I'm, I'm, I'm plant based. I don't eat any animal flesh. And shiitake for me are that's my, that's my meat. I, I make tacos with it, with the stems, and I make broth. And in that broth, I will probably add some um, medicinal mushrooms also. I, I've learned, as you were saying, to make my food, my medicine. And you can it can still taste really really good actually even better but you're oh, yeah. actually oh, enhancing your body but just before I forget uh, you were like I don't consider mushroom supplements even though they're sold many times as supplements because they're not supplementing anything they're like what you were saying at the beginning they actually are enhancing and giving your body instructions to how how to work or awakening that nature. Intelligence that it has within, right? Because they're not supplements. You're not taking vitamin C that once you stop, it's out. This you're right. holding reserves and you're instructing and teaching your body how to react in case of. And then there's the other spectrum: the people that instead of taking them as a preventative um, uh, lifestyle option, they will get sick and they go to Whole Foods or whatever Whole Check and they will buy all the medicinal mushrooms and um, take them all, and they say, "Oh, they don't work." Because as anything, nature works slowly and its own tempo. And you have to start building your reserves. And it takes weeks, months, and whatever, like even, even, even years, to really get to an optimal state using these medicines, right?
1: Oh, I totally agree. Yeah, that, that's well, well stated. That's, that's exactly right. And, and we do want our food. I mean, that's the foundation. That is really the foundation. And, and if you're out there, a person is out there eating all of those processed foods, you are not doing yourself a favor. You are not helping yourself at all. You're doing a lot of damage to your body.
0: Um, so what are the different, uh, stages or fungal stages? Because as I've, I've, you know, like I'm, I will say I'm pretty new with the mushroom world, even though I've been like four, four years, five years diving deep and uh, interviewing different people. Uh, I know Ronti Garden and he also grows uh, uh, mushrooms in China and I, I saw he had in his office a massive Raishi and I was like, wow, this is this is this is God's greatest gift. Uh, and um but um then I see that there's they also sell Raishi spores uh to to intake. So what what should we looking for and what are the different benefits of the different fungal stages?
1: Well, well, first of all, uh for people who don't know, mushrooms do not produce seeds, they produce spores, that's how they reproduce. The spore uh, in nature is in the soil, <clears throat> it's in on wood. When conditions are right, the spore will germinate into a very fine filament called a hypha. When multiple spores germinate and those hypha come together, they'll form a network and that network is called mycelium. The mycelium is the body, of the fungus. We would call it the vegetative body and its role in nature is to decompose. So it is out there. It's repurposing all of that organic matter ultimately into humus for for plants and trees to to utilize. Mm -hmm. So it's a recycler. That's what it's doing. So this mycelial body is out there and it's also building up reserves of energy so that When conditions are right, and here in the Pacific Northwest, that means it's fall, Mm -hmm. Uh, the temperature goes down, it starts to rain, it gets very wet and moist, a mushroom will come up from that mycelium, which has the energy to produce it, the mushroom comes up, and as it matures, it opens up, the gills underneath produce the spores, Mm -hmm. which they come out and away they go, and we've completed this life cycle. So, so in terms of actual um, what we would call plant parts of, a, of this mushroom, we have a spore, we have mycelium, and we have the mushroom itself. Now, so each one of those has been utilized for medicinal purposes. Mycelium in some parts of the world, like China, they grow mycelium in very large tanks, and they get pure mycelium which has medicinal properties not as good as a mushroom mushroom produces many more complex compounds than mycelium does Mm -hmm. mycelium on its own so sometimes these companies they're selling mycelium they'll say oh gee there's lots of research on mycelium it's Mm -hmm. got these well there is but they don't have all that starch in it that's not you know that's the problem with your products spores now and, and, you know, Jose, the coolest thing in the world that I've seen is in China now, they collect the reishi spores. Oh, well. And they do that. Think about it as the mushroom is standing up and as the cap is open, they will put a shroud around it, paper, kind oh. of a, a stiff paper around it, so the spores cannot escape. And they put a bag at the bottom of uh, where this, the stem is, right in the center, and the, a plastic bag. The spores fall down into this bag, and so they collect the spores. And one reishi mushroom can produce half a kilo, 500 grams of spores. It is incredible. Mm. Well, the reason they're doing that now is because they did some research in China that, that indicated that spores have medicinal benefits. I've I've looked at that research and, and there's other scientists that I know in China that's looked at the research and I'm not convinced that those spores have benefits. Now now two things. A spore, if you just consume the spore like you're eating a mushroom and it's got spores and you're consuming the spores go right through you. We we cannot crack that hard shell that the spore is in mm-hmm. uh, so a spore we can't eat spores and but what they do in china is they put them in a process where they they claim to crack Back, yeah. the shell of the spore so they talk they talk about it as uh uh cracked spores um or broken spores and but but you know and it's, really the, it's really pricey it's really pricey when i see uh, the, uh, uh, the, the products of ricey spores it's 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 crazy and and you know what the spores the, what's inside of them are actually fatty acids and those fats are there to give energy when that spore germinates that's like a seed a seed has energy in it enough energy just to get uh whatever it is and this a seed get the plant going growing and then it starts to absorb nutrients from the soil uh, same with the spore it gets that uh, uh, hypha. uh growing out and then the hypha gets on to its food source and gets its food from that but it's mostly fatty acids Mm. and there's claims for all sorts of what's really inside the spore but but i personally don't from what i've seen of the research i i'm i'm i don't really think that spores are a beneficial medicinal uh, Mm. product. So I, I, we don't sell them. I don't encourage people to buy them. They're too expensive. A lot of the spore is sometimes they'll sell spore oil Mm -hmm. and, and actually, you know, the, the problem is, is, is maybe you get this uh, bottle of spore oil and actually what it is, is be a soft gel and inside would be the spore oil. I know people that have bought that and they said, you know what, most of that oil turned out to be just vegetable oil. How do you really know what's in that capsule? Oh, yeah. How do you really know how much is reishi spore, spore oil? Even even if it were 100 percent spore oil, does it really have any benefits? Personally, I don't think so.
0: Yeah, I, I guess they realize that the Western world likes expensive and very unique products, and they're uh, uh, banking on it, right? They they have to make uh, their their
1: their Christmas like we see in Mexico. Well, um,
0: yeah,
1: and uh, Although, let me say this uh, quickly mm-hmm. that. <clears throat> The spore business just got a started out in China, and companies in China were selling these spore products, and they claimed that this reishi spore would do everything in the world that you can imagine. And so that's really where it got its start. And now it's kind of filtered over to the U.S. And I just think that until there's some really good research avoid it. it's not really credible in my opinion
0: yeah and i think we'll, we need lots of independent research because if you pay the right scientists and you tell them what to look for you, they will always find that that's what has been happening with the fda for as as long as i remember i guess you know
1: absolutely
0: um, so you know uh, i have to uh, confess that i've always been you know i don't know maybe because it's from my own superstitions or own uh, dogmatic uh, way of thinking regarding china that like oh i want i want canadian grown um, mushrooms or i want that's how i found your company actually in the beginning where i want u.s grown uh fungi is there you've you started since 87 or 89 you said uh the organic uh, uh training in china can we trust organic chinese mushrooms
1: well, you know what? Um, the fact is, is that ultimately, it's a matter of testing, and and um, we test first of all. First of all, the organic certification in China is not Chinese certifiers; it's German certifiers. Okay. So it's a high quality certification organization. And then before our products even leave China, they are tested for pesticides. They're tested for heavy metals. They're tested for microorganisms. All being tested in third party laboratories uh, that, are, that are international laboratories, not like, not like in house in China or anything like that. And then when our products get over to North America, we test them again with different laboratories over here. So our products are all tested twice. And, and look, I understand people should always be aware of the fact that there are food products there are supplements that i mean i mean so much of our food and, and is being grown with chemicals i mean mm-hmm. the the millions of tons of chemicals are are put on crops in canada in the united states uh, unless you're buying organic you can be sure that you will be getting a certain amount of pesticides or or other problem chemicals in your food right now, they've, they've shown in, in the United States that there's all sorts of contamination now with glyphosates, which are a product of this Roundup, which is a chemical that gets sprayed on a lot of crops in North America. So I I totally understand, and, and I, I've i been certified organic since 1992. We, we certified uh, growers in China in 1997. Um, I believe in organic certification. I, I believe in clean food. I, I'm totally against the use of chemicals on, on food. So, so for me, I have to be selling a, a clean product. So, mm. so no, everybody has to be vigilant about what they purchase. <clears throat> and, and I'm also somebody who totally, totally believes in buying local. If I can buy local, I will. I, I don't like it when I see an apple in my market that comes from New Zealand. I mean, why? <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, why? I,
1: I, want, I want local food. But again, the issue is simply that it's too expensive to grow mushrooms as supplements in North America. So I have to take my organic ethic to China and say, look, you, you need to start thinking about this. And you know what? They, China is really, believe it or not, they're doing a lot Um, And there are lots of companies that are growing organically now and are looking at this method of of production. And that's important. We have to push them just like in China. Now they're the world's number one um, producer of solar cells and they have more solar cells in place than anywhere else. They have electric trains. When I'm over there, I'm riding around in China on a train that's going 300 kilometers an hour. Wow! It's Electric fantastic. train. Wow! Yeah, it's fantastic. And so, so you know, people can can talk about China all they want, but I just say look in your own backyard because your 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 companies in in your country are using tons of chemicals.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for uh, uh, letting me know that and give me a peace of mind. So uh, I started using mushrooms uh, because my own uh, um, curiosity of. Uh, enhancing my performance. And, and, you know, I I love studying books and learning about any kind of a a spiritual or, or, or high performance, uh, techniques and whatnot. I, I, I love doing sport and I also host retreats where I need a lot of energy during those days because I become the father of X amount of people for a number of days. And I need a lot of energy and peace of mind that after that, I'm not going to have my immune system jeopardized. Um, I'm going to tell you the mushrooms I, I usually tend to get at the shop. And if you could tell us a little bit of, about them, of the ones you want, maybe. Raishi, you already mentioned it. Uh, lion's mane, it's becoming a big trend because sadly enough, many of our parents or elderly people are not even that elderly. Just relatives are having brain issues. What's uh, Lion's Mane for?
1: Well mane actually has has compounds that stimulate what's called nerve growth factor mm-hmm. and nerve growth factor is is a a chemical that we have in our our head that will stimulate the production of nerve cells neurites and, and you know we w- nerve cells are being destroyed and created all the time in our body but as we get older the the i think the destruction gets a little bit faster than the reproduction of those Mm. neurites and so so ultimately we start to have memory issues and and cognitive issues and uh, uh, people get dementia, Alzheimer's, things like that. Um, Lion's Mane has demonstrated in actual clinical trials that it can enhance people's cognition and there, there have been actual clinical studies with using a very low amount using 3 grams of just dried mushroom powder to 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 enhance that so so right now and you know this is all part of what are called nootropics there's a real No-tropics. big category out there of of nootropics and that's sort of like anybody that can can anything that can actually stimulate our performance in some way and you know what's interesting of course is that um now microdosing of uh, psilocybe is considered part of nootropics Mm -hmm. as well. And so a lot of people are doing that. Lion's mane is, is lion's mane is our top selling uh, product right now. We can hardly keep it in stock. Everybody wants lion's mane. And, And it just goes to show you too, how everybody out there, whether it's young or old feels like, if we can get some sort of cognitive benefits, we want them mm-hmm. for me. For me, the nootropic that I love is uh, it's called coffee.
0: coffee. <laughs> <laughs> uh, topic about coffee. Uh, there's, uh, I'm sure you know, there's a a brand that is promoting um, a mix of chaga and coffee as, as a mixture. Is there any benefit in that? Or is it just like the boost of the coffee plus the magic of the chaga?
1: <laughs> you know what? Um, There are a lot of innovative products out there. And uh, I mean, our customers are putting mushrooms into everything.
0: Yeah, I make chocolate with it. Many people do. I make soups. I'm salad dressings. uh, I just put it all over the place. And sometimes that reminds me of what uh, Paul Samets uh, said uh, to uh, Michael Pollan in his interview, uh, saying that he truly believes that the fungi is using us as a vehicle of propagation that they are taking over the world, using us as the vehicle.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I personally, I I don't subscribe to a lot of Paul's uh, theories (laughs) like, like mycelium is the internet of the world. Look, we live in a very large organism made up of multiple species we're all working together in this Gaia is something where we're all working together. The idea that, you know, we're kind of isolating this one thing like, Oh yeah, mycelium, it's an isolated thing and it's the the internet. That's like total baloney in my, in my opinion, you know, it's even like when it's out there decomposing things, mycelium is working with bacteria. It's working with insects. Um, communication i mean do you really think there's one organism that is in charge of all the communication on this earth no 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 no
0: no too 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 much responsibility
1: yeah every organism is is communicating in various ways we don't necessarily see that but you know and and that's one of the things that i feel like when i am be mushroomed I experience that directly. I, I, I can see, I can visualize, I can feel the fact that there is this connection with us on, on levels that we don't understand. Don't don't necessarily see in our normal state of consciousness, mm-hmm. but we're all connected and there's communication going back and forth mm-hmm. all, all the time, time between mm-hmm. organisms. And it's not the mycelial inner internet that Paul wants to visualize. That's just such a, to me, it's a, such a juvenile idea.
0: <laughs> okay, next one. Um, chaga. What are the benefits of chaga? And why well, chaga, would somebody yeah. like to take it?
1: You, you know, Jose, chaga is is uh, um, something that is, is um been used traditionally for stomach ailments. For st- okay, That's really where chaga comes in. So if somebody has stomach issues like irritable bowel syndrome or Crohn's disease or something like that, Man, try chaga see if that helps you It's it's been used for for ulcers stomach ulcers things like that try chaga it was also used how, for, how would they have uh,
0: to take it for stomach issues what would be the i, I would say make a tea out of it tea.
1: okay yeah and, and you know what the, the the great thing about chaga is is um you can buy wild crafted chaga chunks out there and and uh uh, I, I, you know, rather than buying a product that, I mean, I mean, you can also buy, buy a chaga powder, uh, that's that's cool too, but you know, uh, an encapsulated chaga product, you know, no, uh, get yourself the chaga chunks, make your own tea from it. I like the chaga chunks. The powder, throw it into your smoothie. Um, I, 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 you know, if you got on the internet too, man, I mean, what is it? They say chaga is the king of mushrooms and things like that. It's not the king of mushrooms. Chaga is a good medicinal mushroom. Mm -hmm. It's got its place, but it's not a panacea. It doesn't do everything. Mm -hmm. It's just one of of many different mushrooms that can provide you some benefits, but please don't look at it as a panacea, which is what a lot of these internet sites want to say about it. I mean, mean, there's so much hype out there on the internet, especially (laughs) when people are trying to sell products. It's like... Cut through the hype don't believe be skeptical be
0: skeptical Well, that, that's that's why I wanted to have you in the in the podcast because uh, you're like you you come from lots of knowledge from many years of testing and probing and telling us that spores right now you wouldn't bet on it difference between wild crafted chaga from Vancouver Island to Chaga from uh, siberia
1: well well you know what um, what we found, we did some testing years ago, and what we found was that the chaga that was growing on alder trees was not as powerful as the chaga that was grown on birch trees. Oh, okay. So, so ch- the depending on the tree it's growing on, it may not be as potent. And you know what's interesting about chaga is chaga it's not a mushroom. It's not even mycelium or a sclerotia. And a sclerotia, for people that don't know, a sclerotia, some, some fungi, they will produce a very hard mass of mycelium that grows underground. Mm. And it's like a truffle. Mm-hmm. A- and and that's called a sclerotia, and it's pure 100% mycelium. Uh, sometimes chagas uh, call this sclerotia. We even have it on our products as a sclerotia. But actually... It's a canker. canker. Um, the, The mycelium is inside that tree, and that tree at some point reacts to that mycelium, which is consuming the tree, reacts, and it pushes out this canker off the side of the tree, which is mostly woody tissue with some mycelium in it, and it forms this really gnarly, black, canker form, irregular, which is really weird. And for those people that think, oh yeah, yeah you're, you're damaging the tree. Look, when you're harvesting it, no, you're not. You're not damaging the tree at all. That canker is growing up up there. This tree is diseased. When you see that canker, that's a dead tree standing. It is not healthy. It is permeated with this mycelium, which will ultimately kill that tree. When you take that chaga off it 's no different than really removing a wart, uh, but the fact is is that tree is already, already gone. dead it 's already i mean it 's not dead at that point it's it 's living but and it may be alive to some degree, but it is dying because that chaga is going to completely take it over until finally the tree collapses and gets consumed completely. But but if you see that chaga on there, it's a diseased tree. Chaga is a parasite.
0: Okay. It also has some uh, um, anti-cancer properties, or that's
1: something that we're still s- debating? Well, or... well, traditionally, traditionally, chaga has been used as a folk remedy for cancer. Okay. Um, there are claims that chaga is the, the top antioxidant out there. Yeah. I- I'm not so sure because... You know what? The fact is, is that they all base that on what's called an ORAC test, O-R-A-C. And ORAC tests have been demonstrated to have very little validity. So you can't base a statement like that on a ORAC test, which is what a lot of people do. It scores very high on ORAC, but that may be just very meaningless. I mean, all mushrooms have antioxidant, uh, uh, abilities so uh and and chaga probably does as well but is it is it the number one i don't know that that's true either okay okay and no, that, is it, is it interesting how how you know it's like i'm not going to say oh yeah 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 it's just, it'll do everything for it'll you do everything
0: well yeah you know they have to sell the product it's the same story with the spores as soon as there's a a small uh, beep somewhere that will say that that was the beep that created the world and and yeah it's marketing i guess that's why we have to do our research and test it for ourselves and i guess in the end if you believe that it's the one mushroom or or um a mycelium or whatever that will heal the
1: world you can believe it it's up to you that's right that's absolutely right that's absolutely Um, right but i I think the important thing and what i what i really try to do is just educate people yeah yeah educated decision
0: yeah 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 i guess that's the best thing and uh what about cordyceps because when i was contacting you uh you you mentioned that Cordyceps 45, it's, it's, it's too hard to grow compared to, what's the other one, Cordyceps?
1: Well, there's Cordyceps uh, sinensis, which you can't grow, yeah. and then there's Cordyceps militaris. Militaris, yeah. Which is what we grow, and, and, and you know, growing mushrooms is not easy. And And here it is, all of this time, nobody's been able to grow Cordyceps until just recently and now for the first time ever we're growing tons of cordyceps so that so you know cordyceps is so rare that it reached a point a few years ago where they were selling it for $20,000 a dried kilogram oh wow 20,000 you know what that price was just absolutely ridiculous because <laughs> nobody could consume it regularly without breaking their bank and and Putting them into poverty <laughs> simply wouldn't happen, you know. So, so, the fact that we can now cultivate it is very important. And Cordyceps militaris has been used traditionally, just like Cordyceps sinensis, which is the wild crafted caterpillar fungus. And so, people for people who don't know, Cordyceps tradition uh, basically, when you harvest it, it grows off a caterpillar, and the caterpillar with the wild cordyceps is part of that medicine. So when you are consuming the traditional cordyceps sinensis, you are actually consuming that caterpillar too. But what's interesting is the caterpillar hibernates over the winter, it's got spores on it, the spores then uh, will germinate, they will consume the caterpillar So the caterpillar never wakes up. And then in the summer, this little blade of grass like cordyceps grows off the caterpillar. And so when people are out there wildcrafting for it, they're on their hands and knees. When they see this little tiny thing, which looks like a blade of grass, they then go and they dig around it and they pull out the caterpillar. And that's part of what they're looking for. The caterpillar. And with this little fungus growing on it, so so the actual name for it in China is winter worm, summer grass. Winter worm, summer grass. Winter worm, summer grass. Very <laughs> descriptive. And, and, and the caterpillar is still looks like a caterpillar, but you know what? The funny thing is, is that the total insides of the caterpillar has been consumed. Wow. It's the the mycelium has consumed the whole inside, and it's actually a sclerosis inside. It's a hardened mass of mycelium, but the caterpillar body, the skin, is still there. So, uh, so you have this caterpillar with this little little tiny blade of grass like like um, fungus growing off of it, and that is the traditional winter worm summer grass that they use traditionally as a medicine. And what they use it for is. Fatigue, when people are coming out of a long illness, they'll give them cordyceps to help them escape that period where they're, they're tired, they lack energy, they can't seem to, to get healthy again, they give them cordyceps. Um, the idea of fatigue has then translated over here to the West where people use cordyceps for athletic types of issues. But maybe just general. If you're if you generally feel weak and uh, malaise and like you're just your immunity doesn't feel right, cordyceps could be a, a good uh, okay. supplement for for a person.
0: Okay, awesome. Um, so if you had to recommend a combo of two mushrooms uh, for uh, let's say like young entrepreneurs or somebody that's like about to start the venture and they need like they know they need a boost because probably they live in the city hopefully not but they live in the city uh what two mushrooms will you recommend
1: i'd recommend uh um i think well i mean i mean let's let's let me have three let's let's say three okay three is better than two yeah, yeah. I, would say, I would say reishi uh, cordyceps and lion's mane okay reishi cordyceps yeah, and lion's mane, cordyceps okay.
0: and lion's
1: mane. I, I think those would be the the top three that I would recommend to somebody. I mean, you know, lion's mane is really trending right now because of the t- nootropics thing. So yeah, go ahead and, and use lion's mane. That could give you a boost. You know, what's interesting is that it's not the only one that will stimulate nerve growth factor. Reishi's shown those same abilities. Um, and then cordyceps, you'll have that underlying anti-fatigue energy thing. So those three, uh, I think would be a, a very okay. good combination
0: is maitake also good for the brain i i i think so right
1: um, i i would have to look i don't remember specifically that maitake is there maitake is is one of those that has great immunological activity okay. real strong anti cancer benefits i mean maitake is really solid in that area so so definitely but you know the thing about it is is that maitake is available like in vancouver you can buy maitake in the in the markets fresh yeah, yeah yeah and you can buy shiitake so so people should be eating maitake and shiitake daily i mean i you know what i have mushrooms at least every second day as a meal so you mean
0: fresh mushrooms, mushrooms. fresh mushrooms okay. fresh mushrooms okay okay absolutely and okay. you know what
1: when, when i sit down to and put them in in a meal i'm cooking up i could eat a half a pound oh yeah easy easy, easy. yeah <laughs> you know, and, and uh and I also like the agaricus and you can get organic agaricus now. Agaricus to me is a delicious mushroom as well. I mean I still like that. I I grew that mushroom for ten years. I, I grew millions of pounds of it. Mm-hmm. I know it very well. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> one one of my, fa- what? One of my you- favorite
0: things to do is uh in fall, if uh, if I'm in, in in North America, I usually do a road trip down the Pacific Coast from Vancouver. Cool. Up in all the farmers market from Vancouver, obviously to Portland. That's when it starts changing. It's amazing the the colors of the mushrooms, of all these mushroom growers or foragers. You you can see yellow, maitake, purple. I don't know. It's just so beautiful to see the the wide array of. Of mushrooms that you can in- incorporate into your food as a daily supplement. Absolutely, and it's you so know, tasty.
1: That, well, yeah, and and that is the where you can get these different species of mushrooms because there's a lot of um, a lot of smaller growers that are in those farmer market. There's a couple of bigger growers that are growing. You know, in the United States, there's there's bigger growers that will grow shiitake and some bigger growers will mytaki and a few others, but. In those small little markets, there's always some local person that's Mm. growing mushrooms and bringing it to the local market.
0: Mm. Cool. Thank you very much. Uh, Amazing information. And uh, I'll definitely add uh, some links of your website because in your website, you have so much information regarding these mushrooms and and many, many more. Um, uh, Before, uh, I I wanted to mention this when you were talking about uh, the conference you used to host. And I was like... You know, it's a pity that I was not alive back then because I would have loved uh, partaking in the, in the costume and everything. Is there any chance of you hosting something like this, like a, a Remember conference bringing uh, all the glories uh, from those times and, 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 and seeing where we are in the mushroom uh, experience?
1: You know, no, actually not. And, and it's too bad. I, I agree. But, but you know what? Actually, Actually, let me say this. There are a couple of mushroom conferences in the U.S. that are like that. One of them is called uh, the Telluride Telluride. Festival that they have in the summer every year in Telluride, Colorado, and a couple of things they do. They have people in costumes, and they have a parade through this little town uh, of of all the people that attend this conference, and people are dressed up in all of these different costumes. So the Telluride Festival for sure. And and I think you might check too, people could check on Brighton Bush Hot Springs. You know, after our final conference, the one where we had Terrence McKenna, they, and we stopped doing the conference, they started doing conferences uh, and they started doing it on a yearly basis and it was always around Halloween. It was kind of a Halloween conference, mushroom conference. They may still be doing it there too. But I know for a fact that Telluride is doing these every year, and it's in uh, August, I
0: think. August. Can you share why you stopped doing uh, those mushroom conference?
1: Oh, my – well, for one, you know, I moved to British Columbia, and uh, our group that was doing them kind of dissolved. Mm -hmm. Paul may even have done a couple, carried on and done a couple. I don't really remember. Um, But the thing is, is, you know, at that point, I moved to British Columbia – establishing my business there i have a a young family i have two sons they were young they were born in the early 80s so i just was busy with so many other things and and building the business there and establishing my new life there was uh, the focus of my my life at that Mm. time
0: Mm. okay okay beautiful well, uh, I, we got the pictures, and I'll put a, a link to the pictures. Uh, maybe I'll send you even the link. Uh, I'm, pretty sure, I'm sure you're going to have a good laugh watching uh, all these pictures. So there's a, a group of you guys with uh, drums and, and jambes and everything. It, looks, it looked like a wonderful celebration. Um, one last uh, question. Knowing what you know now, and I uh, definitely ask this question uh, to, uh, to many uh, guests, knowing what you know now, giving your experience and what you've uh, lived through these years, what would you tell yourself, let's say, 30 years ago? 20, 20 30 years ago?
1: Um, I guess what I would say is... Um, what advice would you give yourself? Yeah, I, I would say um, have confidence in yourself and your environment stay tuned in to the natural world um, um, uh, get out and uh, be in nature as much as possible which which I, I did actually but but I, I guess again just just um, stay focused on on what's important and uh, spread as much spread as much love as possible with your friends and uh, family.
0: Mm, beautiful. I think, I think you've done a, a great job spreading the love, spreading uh, the mushroom uh, information and mushroom power. Uh, so it's, uh, it's been a great uh, chat and it's been a uh, very uh, inspiring to hear your story and know where you started and where you're standing now. And thank you for uh, promoting uh, organic, uh, organic and, sustainable farming in China. So us, uh, the rest of the world can enjoy mushrooms without having to pay $20,000 per kilo. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to maybe visit you one day when I'm I'm up in that area of the world. And uh, thank you very much.
1: Oh, absolutely. Thank you for having me, Jose. And, and it's uh, my pleasure to make this connection with you and, and you're absolutely welcome to come up to Tofino. I'd love to have you up here. And, and, you know, we've got so much that we could talk about. This is just a small amount. I'd love to hang out with you. So oh, yeah, let's definitely. keep that in mind and, and let's make that happen. Mm-hmm. Blessings. Blessings.